welcome to the Von Nelson Podcast. My name is Dan Hughes. With me today is Chris Wallace, CEO, CIO, and Senior Portfolio Manager here at Von Nelson. Welcome, Chris. Thanks, Dan. Well, let's dive right into it. A lot of news lately about the U.S. balance sheet. Uh, over $4.5 trillion have expanded upon it in recent years. Um, the theme of excess liquidity uh, and central bank expansion globally have been a big driver of the marketplace. Fed has now made a decision to begin contraction of that balance sheet. Chris, what, what are your thoughts on that? Sure. Um, I think that's going to be the most important topic uh, for 2018, for sure. <clears throat> but more importantly, just going, going forward, th- this is a true inflection. And in the simplest terms, the way people should think about a reduction in the Fed's balance sheet, and more importantly, um, announcements by other central banks that they may begin to reverse course as well, is no matter what a central banker says, they're moving from quantitative easing to quantitative tightening. And when you look at the implications to risk assets in general, it's simply uh, the excess liquidity that's been searching for a home, that's been driving yields lower, uh, that's made the cost of capital lower, um, all of that is going to reverse on the margin. And it may be that there's so much liquidity out there that it's not material. It may be that on the margin, a slight reduction in that liquidity can have a fairly significant impact on risk assets. And we'll have to wait and see as as they begin to implement the process. Mechanically, what it means is as bonds mature, what's happened to date, once the Fed stopped creating new money, they would just reinvest the proceeds from those bond maturities back into the market into either assets for sale or, in the case of uh, the U.S. Treasury, uh, bonds being issued. What they're going to do on a go-forward basis is as their U.S. Treasuries mature and as their mortgages they hold mature, they're not going to reinvest those proceeds. And what that actually means is they're going to start reducing the monetary stock in the banking system. And it means the private sector itself is going to have to step up and provide liquidity for those individual bonds that either need to be refinanced or if they're new issue bonds, they need to be uh, purchased for the first time. It kind of doubles the amount of pressure on the private sector because traditionally when a, an example, a U.S. Treasury is maturing and they're just going to refinance it instead of paying it off because we're never really going to pay this debt off. Um, one person receives uh, uh, the money from the new bond, and essentially they're just taking the bond from one person who owned the previous bond as it's refinanced. Somebody else gives the money to pay that other individual off. Since it's on the Fed's balance sheet, the money that would normally be there in the private pool to fund the refinancing isn't there. So it is going to start draining liquidity from the private sector. There's no question about that. Um, Certainly, an argument can be made that yields are so low because there's insufficient amount of yield product out there relative to the demand. So any incremental uh, reduction in Fed balance sheet should be fairly minor. And a lot of that is going to hinge on what the other central banks do, uh, how strong the economy itself is, so are the risk assets well bid, um, as well as what happens to underlying federal deficits. Should those accelerate, um, it, it will have some crowding out effect and may pressure private bond yields a little bit higher 
and therefore, you know, kind of change the cost of capital for some of these risk assets. You know, if I'm just following you on the inverse, you know, QE, essentially, you said, look, we should fully anticipate the cost of capital rising and, and yields beginning to, to tick upward. Yeah, I think that's correct. And, and the only way that may not be the case um, <clears throat> would be if we felt like interest rates were moving high enough that it was starting to tighten up the economy and people were going to start reducing the riskier portions of their portfolio and look for that safety bid. Because um, there's no question that were we to have a recession uh, from today's starting point, you'd see a fairly significant contraction in most risk assets. Do you think the end result from an investing standpoint and a sector level, uh, we've seen a huge run-up in yield proxy vehicles, right, namely REITs and utilities. Uh, do you think there'll be some uh, heavier pressure applied to those assets uh, as a result of folks uh, finally being able to invest uh, in the credit markets, given we'll, we'll see a move? Yes, th- there's no question about that. If yields move higher, the bond proxies are going to move lower. Uh, more importantly, a lot of low PE stocks will move lower as well because they're cyclically oriented, and this will put incremental pressure on uh, a lot of cyclical sectors should the cost of borrowing move higher. Um, you know, it's reasonable to think that given the range that we've seen treasuries in over the last year, how tight credit spreads are right now, the market should be able to absorb uh, some modest increases in, in, in real rates. Um, but it is one more headwind. And there's just no question from a valuation standpoint, um, you know, fixed income securities are as expensive as, as they've been in the last 200 years for sure. And with that, a lot of growth stocks are as well because those low yields have bid uh, up the terminal value for these growth assets in a world where growth is, is relatively scarce. So there's no question that we should see a pickup in volatility across sectors, across asset classes as liquidity unwinds. If it's just the U.S. and the ECB and Japan continue at the level of quantitative easing that is ongoing now, then it's a much more muted impact, if any impact at all. If we see the ECB begin to reduce the amount of quantitative easing they do by the end of 2018, uh, there's some fairly dramatic uh, implications to that. There's yeah. no question that you know European high yield probably wouldn't trade below U.S. Treasuries. Read an article a couple, uh, probably about six weeks ago, with an interview with Draghi, uh, and discussed the time frame for their their tightening. Uh, he was looking at the second half of 2018, and and so I guess that you just laid it out there, right? I mean, if these are are coinciding with one another, um, the uh, loss of liquidity to risk markets uh, would be relatively substantial. Yes. Um, and, you know, there's been some estimates out there that if you looked at kind of what the G4 central banks have added to capital markets over the, just the last three years, when post the U.S. starting to wind down its own quantitative easing program, that it was an incremental, say, half a, half a trillion dollars of liquidity in uh, 2016, uh, lower levels in 2017, maybe 100 to 200 billion of incremental liquidity but with the Fed starting to contract its balance sheet, the anticipated levels of deficits that will still be run by our own uh, federal government and some uh, estimate for a reduction in quantitative easing by Draghi, it's not unreasonable to assume that you're going to lose upwards of a trillion dollars of incremental liquidity under risk assets. And while, you know, a trillion is a big number, 
you know, you're talking about a very large risk asset pool, but we need to recognize that as the Fed has raised rates in the last several quarters, monetary conditions have actually eased because the dollar went down at the same time. And that's provided a lift to the multinationals. That's why we've seen the S&P 500 perform relatively well this year. It's provided a tailwind to the commodity complex. Um, if we see this liquidity starting to tighten up monetary conditions such that the downward pressure on the dollar reverses, and there's a reasonable expectation for that just given uh, how quick the dollars move lower, a dollar rally would only add to the liquidity tightening we're talking about with the Fed rolling off its balance sheet and would probably seek to reverse some of the gains we've seen year to date and some of kind of the economic growth tailwinds we've seen out of the industrial sector. And I think that's only the natural conclusion, right? If you're removing this much liquidity um, from the marketplace, you ultimately have to see some type of, of correction, I would imagine. And do you? So you know, we've we've talked on here a handful of times about you know ways to correct, and that yeah. you know there, there's really two two ways that you see a correction, right? You either correct through price, which is you know immediately felt, or you correct through time, where you, know, you allow the the multiple to grow into uh, the, uh, the where it's trading at. So. In, in this scenario, uh, what's the more likely outcome of the two, and, and specifically as it pertains to U.S. Uh, US equities? Yeah, I, you know, I think the correction through time is the scenario we're in right now. And I'll, I'll just reference kind of the U.S. small cap value universe for that. Uh, in a move last year that was upwards of 30 percent, um, and it's been, while the index itself has been somewhat sanguine and hadn't moved much at the surface, beneath there the surface at the company-specific level has been quite volatile. And so you've seen that correction via time on a year-to-date basis where the index is still relatively flat. We've seen reasonably good earnings recovery out of the industrial uh, sector and the energy sector. We've seen technology continue to do well. We've had the pressures in the consumer discretionary space. But overall, we've seen earnings growth in 2017, yet the index itself is flat. Um, it really will depend on how serious the Fed is about reducing their balance sheet if we see an economic slowdown. Um, and, you know, from my vantage point right now, what I would say is we know we're very mature in certain sectors, uh, be it the auto sector as an example. Um, at the same time, we know that the credit impulse that accelerated out of China and led to a reacceleration in the commodity space really in the early part of 2016 is rolling over and waning. So we know liquidity conditions are going to tighten, and that should put some downward pressure on economic activity on the margin. Um, you know, just listening to uh, Chair Yellen's uh, uh, press conference post the Fed announcement, uh, she seemed to be pretty clear that they would rather not adjust the pathway for the reduction of the balance sheet, and their preferred measure at first would be to reduce the Fed funds rate. Um, I think it's, it's really important for anyone listening and anyone investing right now to really understand that there is a very uh, big difference between the valuation of the market and the fundamentals of the market. And what I mean by that is when you look at the economic conditions around the world, there's very little excess. Um, there is not a lot of excess non-residential construction, 
you know, we can argue whether we should be selling 15 million cars a year or 17 million cars a year. Uh, but on the margin, we're not excessive with uh, automobile sales, uh, residential construction activity is still very modest. Uh, consumer leverage is in very good shape. Uh, corporate balance sheets are fully levered, but not over levered. And so we can look at the economy and we can look at the business cycle and recognize that unless liquidity conditions tighten up, there is nothing organically fundamentally excessive that is going to create a slowdown. That being said, there's still a massive bubble in, in capital markets, and that massive bubble is valuations, and it is driven by the excess liquidity. So I wouldn't be surprised if the market's corrected, but yet the economy did fine and earnings did fine. And I also wouldn't be surprised if, uh, given those conditions, if the Fed moves slow enough and the other large central banks don't make a material shift in their policy stance, that we really can correct just via time. So it's still early. Um, people just need to understand that the asymmetry is to the downside in a correction, uh, and, and it's not to the upside from here, even with changes in fiscal policy via tax or infrastructure spending. Continuing with the theme of liquidity, um, so much of the liquidity that we found last year found its way into U.S. small cap. Um, and this year, right, uh, it, it seems to have gone elsewhere. We've seen the money flowing into into large uh, U.S. large cap and then international as well. Um, and both of those areas have, have run uh, really quite strongly. It, so what, why, uh, why do you think that's the case? And I, I think what people need to do is step back away from the capital markets uh, and the day-to-day, because it's, it's amazing how really short-term focused investors in the market seem to be today. And if you look, all we've done, and we've had a big mean reversion trade, right? There was a powerful trade that centered around a strengthening dollar that's peaked, and now we have a trade that's reversing and it's benefiting from the falling dollar. Um, but given the full valuations, um, I think what we're going to wake up and see a year from now, two years from now, and quite frankly, three years from now, is that overall, the indices are going to have very muted returns, uh, flat to very low single digits, uh, be that positive or negative. And we're going to have this constant kind of mean reversion between large, small, reflation, deflation, easing monetary conditionings, tightening. Uh, And it's just the nature of trying, as you mentioned earlier, correct and digest for not just valuations that may have become stretched, but liquidity conditions that have become stretched. And as things tighten up, you're, we're going to have a, a, you know, a different set of winners and losers. So, so really, you know, money is finding a home based off of the external pressures of what's, a, what's occurring with the dollar, where does liquidity driving, where is that liquidity being sourced from, um, and then ultimately falls down to where people think that their capital is going to be treated best in that specific environment. Correct. And, it, and it's why I think... We're gonna. It's gonna take several quarters to separate the winners from the losers because the central banks aren't pumping in incremental dollars that has to find a place to go, and so you could have very momentum-oriented markets that could melt up with each incremental dollar coming into capital markets. Um, the only way you're gonna move the needle now is going to be from earnings growth, capital redeployment by individual entities that then attracts capital 
from other positions in the capital markets. So those will fall while others will rise and you're going to get greater separation over time and you're going to get, uh, you know, a, a lot less correlations across, even within sectors, but across sectors and across markets. And that's just going to be a natural phenomena of less incremental liquidity coming into the market. Um, certainly after uh, the big shift we saw to passive last year, kind of accelerate that began maybe two or three years ago, um, you know, where it, you know, it forced every risk asset higher. It's just going to be a very different world going forward. And and then another X factor or really another unknown that has been meaningfully uh, shifting the the valuation in the small space is is tax reform and the discussion of tax reform. And we saw this after, uh, you know, post-election in the fourth quarter of 2016, um, you know, that, that conversation's been kicked up again in the mm-hmm. recent weeks. Uh, where are you seeing uh, the small cap market respond to the idea of tax reform? You know, naturally, uh, a lot of those companies are, are less diversified. They're smaller. Mm-hmm. Uh, many of them are full 35% taxpayers. Mm-hmm. Uh, if there is a shift uh, within tax reform, uh, many of these folks are going to benefit. One of the conversations we had at the end of last year, we were talking about um, a lot of companies that were trading, you know, very long on hope and real short on policy at that time. Um, yep. So where do you think we are with respect to tax reform, um, the future uh, implications in the small cap space, and how are you going to plan to trade uh, inside your strategy? Yeah, as you mentioned, there was a lot of uh, hope surrounding uh, the Trump election, and so the automatic response was bid the dollar higher, bid industrials higher, bid anything that paid a tax higher, and there's a knee-jerk reaction around uh, increased uh, probability of tax cuts and the Russell 2000 moving higher. People just buy the ETF when that happens. Um, you know, it's interesting. If you really started breaking like the Russell 2000 down and you're looking at 25 to 30 percent of the companies actually don't make any money. Um, so there's not a lot of incremental benefit for cutting their tax rate. And then you factor in what percentage, for example, in the Russell 2000 value that are REITs that aren't taxpayers. Um, you may be surprised that, uh, you know, 30 to 40 percent of that index would have zero impact from a tax cut. And then conversely, you know, there's plenty of entities out there that don't just pay the full 35 percent, but pay 40 percent. And it is a very meaningful uh, uh, impact on their earnings, and they'd be revised higher in some cases, you know, 15%, in some cases as high as 25%. Uh, there is a counterbalance to that, and that you may get the cut in the rate, but you may be forced to give up your accelerated depreciation. You may be forced to give up your interest rate deduction. And so with all the puts and takes, it's not going to be as material as what investors probably think it's going to be on a cash taxes basis. Certainly, small caps benefit more than large caps in this regard. Um, and in fact, if you looked at the large cap index, I would not at all be surprised for it to end up being neutral to a net negative because although they get their rate cut, they already pay fairly eff- low effective uh, real rates. But giving up that interest rate deduction will raise their cost of capital and make it more difficult to buy back shares, which has been a huge component of large cap outperformance over time. And, you know, again, they may end up paying a higher net cash tax rate than they otherwise would have. Um, You know, when we're looking at individual names today, 
Um, you know, we were looking at a handful of new ideas. Uh, certainly where one's a 40% taxpayer and they meet all your other criteria and you may be looking at another company of equal kind of return probabilities and, and asymmetry to the upside and it's a 25% taxpayer, uh, I'd be more inclined to put the 40% taxpayer into the portfolio for sure because it's just one more shot on goal you have. And, and I think one of the takeaways for me here is, you know, you're looking at the, the Russell 2000 small cap index, nearly a third of that is today is comprised of companies that are not profitable. Um, another, you know, almost, uh, you know, 10% sits in REITs, um, you know, high single digits sits in REITs. So we're, we're knocking on the door here of, of 40% of, uh, of companies that, if there is tax reform, um, will not benefit. And mm-hmm. what has uh, been a huge accelerator to the index indices uh, over the recent past um, will not participate in this, in this particular trade. One of the other things that, that has been very notable in 2017 is the big divergence between growth and value uh, in the market, really across uh, all caps. Um, do you have any, any insight to that, uh, why you think that growth um, has been uh, driven so, so, uh, so much further ahead uh, of value so far this year? Yeah, I, I think it's um, a combination. We've seen really positive liquidity trends coming into the markets this year with the ECB and with uh, Japan continuing uh, to add liquidity on a monthly basis, and that's needed to find a home. And as we've seen the rally in uh, treasury rates throughout the year and the continued compression and uh, spreads for investment grade and high yield uh, fixed income, it only has reduced the cost of capital. Growth is very difficult to find. Uh, in the marketplace. And so those companies that truly have secular growth and have very defensible positions uh, have been bid up dramatically. And really what we've also seen is you've seen a heavy momentum factor kind of gain um, in relevance as we've moved through the year. And so people are kind of crowding into the same names, chasing performance. Um, And it's not uncommon to see that when you get to the latter stages of a, of, a, of a market cycle, and certainly there's a calendar effect in it as well where people start to chase performance in the hope of uh, you know, catching up uh, towards the end of the year. Um, and really, I, I think there's kind of two significant trades in the market, right? It's the companies that you know are uh, really doing well, have really good growth outlooks, they have really high PEs, and then you have companies that may be challenged or may the market has concerned about structural issues, secular structural issues that have really low PEs. Um, and quite frankly, I think those trades kind of have equal upside downside. I think they're both equally risky. Uh, some of those that have the low PEs will turn out to have a very good reason for that low PE. And we're seeing that in retail today. Um, and likewise, some of those growth companies aren't going to be able to grow at the sustained rates um, and will have a downturn in those growth expectations and have pretty severe uh, multiple compression. You know, as we kind of look at how we want to position in this marketplace where um, economic activity is fine, growth is fine, we're really focused on companies where the economic fundamentals in front of them are sound, but more importantly, the valuations match those. They provide upside. If there's surprises to the downside from the business cycle or from the capital markets, uh, there's not a big 
separation between their current valuation and where it should be on a standalone fundamental basis. And we're really trying to avoid those areas where uh, fundamentals are great, uh, the price action is phenomenal, uh, they're hitting new 52-week highs, uh, but at the end of the day, there's a big valuation gap between where that entity is priced and what that fundamental value is. And ultimately, those come back into vogue uh, and, and will complement one another. And so we're giving up a little near term from a momentum standpoint, but think we'll be fairly significantly rewarded uh, over the medium term when fundamentals uh, come back in line with valuations. Uh, so just in, in wrapping up, uh, you know, you've discussed a lot today about, about the macro environment, um, a lot further into depth with regards to small caps specifically. Uh, within your portfolio, uh, given the outlook that you've provided here, uh, anything that we should anticipate seeing out of your strategy and you know in the in the near term midterm long term what do you think we're going to look like here um uh coming out of uh, 2017 from a from a return standpoint we've been you know plus or minus 100 basis points around the index all year um and that's somewhat intentional uh we're not making any big bets one way or the other um other than to say the areas we don't own that are in our universe we think are very overvalued um, and we'll pick up those relative returns when as we began the conversation when real rates move higher economic fundamentals weaken uh, and we'll get great separation there um, the other thing we really want to try to do is we'd like to concentrate the portfolio more so we've turned the portfolio over fairly significantly this year just exiting the the move we had last year um, and we'll probably will continue to be fairly aggressive in our portfolio turnover. Uh, we certainly expect and hope volatility picks up, and we think it's that volatility that's going to give us an opportunity to concentrate the portfolio more. Um, we're already starting to look and, and think about areas that have significantly underperformed in 2017. You know, healthcare services is a great example. You know, we saw the Affordable Care Act pull a lot of volume forward into, you know, 2014, 15, 16, um, and it's kind of left an air, park, air pocket in 2017. Some of that was because of some accelerated uh, activity with ACA. The other element of it is parts of healthcare are just getting more discretionary. Uh, but we're starting to look at companies that are have PE ratios uh, in the high single, low double-digit arena, good ROAs, good ROEs, but more importantly, they're going to grow as fast as the rest of the economy. Um, I think investors need to have very real expectations about where we are in the business cycle. We're not at early stages. Uh, you can certainly make a case we're at mid-cycle, but a big reacceleration here is going to be very difficult to execute. There's just too many puts and takes. Um, and, and people shouldn't underestimate as well the structural changes that are occurring. You know, uh, everybody's familiar with what Amazon's doing to retail. Uh, the technological shifts that we're seeing via in energy, via in transportation, are only going to accelerate over the next few years. And without a broad bid from central banks and monetary stimulus, uh, you're going to start to see very significant separation. I, and people will be surprised when they look back five and ten years from now uh, name, uh, you know, na household name companies that are severely challenged, if not bankrupt, 
Um, and they would have never guessed that could be the case. Well, Chris, thank you so much for joining us today. We certainly appreciate it. Important information. The analysis and opinions referenced herein represent the subjective views of Daniel Hughes and Chris Wallace as of September 20th, 2017. They are subject to change at any time based on market and other conditions. There can be no assurance that developments will transpire as forecasted. Actual results may vary. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Any reference to specific securities, sectors, or markets within this material does not constitute investment advice or a recommendation or an offer to buy or to sell any security or an offer of services. This communication is for information only and is intended for investment professional use only. This material may not be redistributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. Although Natixis Global Asset Management believes the information provided in this material to be reliable, it does not guarantee the accuracy, adequacy, or completeness of such information. Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit ngam.natixis.com or call 800-225-5478 for a prospectus or a summary prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully. Provided by NGAM Distribution LP, 888 Boylston Street, Boston, Massachusetts, 02199 for investment professional use only. Compliance code 19151021. Job pod 780917. Expires 1 31 2018.